If you have a Bible and would like to turn there, Hebrews chapter 10 for our meditation, brief meditation on the Word of God to help frame the supper of our Lord, to give us scriptural knowledge, if we don't already have it, about um, some aspects of our Savior, um, His person, His work, His office, the benefits that come to us, all those technical terms that we heard before. Hebrews chapter 10, I'm going to read, starting in verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things. They they did shadow the things. They told us uh, that some real thing is going to come. Can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have cause to be offered. The old system of sacrifices were effectual to produce perfection, sanctification, uh, in the people that they were offered for, then they would stop offering them. They weren't able to do that, so the repetition. For they would, for then they would not have ceased to be offered for, excuse me, for then would they not have ceased to be offered for the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins, but In those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. The blood of bulls and goats shed could point to the taking away of sins, the full expiation of our guilt, by that to which the types pointed to, Christ, the Son of God incarnate and crucified. But they could point to it, but they couldn't do the job. And so since they couldn't do the job that our Lord does, their job was repeated over and over and over. Now watch verse 5. Therefore, when he, I'm reading the New King James, I think it's referring to Christ here, it's capitalized, came into the world, he said. Now this is very interesting. Sacrifice, this is Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me, to do your will, O God. Now, verse 7 is what I want to focus on there. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. There's various translations probably out there in the, in the seats. The New American Standard 1977, for example, says, Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book, it is written of me. To do thy will, O God. So this parenthetical statement, in the role of the book, it is written me. What does that mean? Uh, The New King James, which I already read, then I said, behold, I have come. Here's another, here's the same parenthetical statement. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will. Now, Let's go back to 1559 and let's hear the Geneva Bible since our brother had us 
go back in history. Let's go back there and let's listen to the Geneva Bible's translation of Hebrews 10.7. Then I said, lo, I come. Here's the parenthetical statement. In the beginning of the book, it is written of me. So we have in the role of the book, in the volume of the book, and now another translation, in the beginning of the book, it is written of me. What is, what is written in the beginning of the book? Whatever book he's talking about. That I should do thy will, O God. This is the one speaking here also is speaking uh, to God about a body prepared by God for him. So he assumes uh, our nature, body, uh, fl- uh, uh, body and soul, uh, and this body that's prepared for him, it is in this body that he does his work, that he does the will of God, that he, that he obeys, and that we benefit from. So the particular question is, what does is, what is verse 7 primarily mean? Now let's kind of put it in context as I tease this out very briefly. First of all, these words in verse 7 are attributed to our Lord during his incarnate state. Verse 5, therefore, when Jesus came into the world, when the Son of God uh, became incarnate, when he was in the world, he said these words. This is a quotation of Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. So that's very important. These words are attributed to our Lord during his incarnate state. Second observation about the context Though these words are attributed to our Lord during his incarnate state, they predate the incarnation. If you have a New American Standard, those two verses are capitalized. Uh, verse, uh, excuse me, verses 5, 6, 6, and 7 are capitalized because it is a quotation of the Old Testament. Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. So let me... Say my second observation again. Though these words are attributed to our Lord during his incarnate state, when he came into the world, he said, the words themselves predate the incarnation. How do we know that? Because it's a quotation from the Psalms. The Psalms are in the Old Testament. It's a Psalm of David, Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. A third observation. Well, let me keep going here. Uh, uh, third observation, excuse me. The apostle, I think Paul wrote it, uh, Hebrews, so the apostle and our Lord attribute the words of David to our Lord in his pre-incarnate state. That's a weird one. Let me say it again. The apostle and our Lord attribute the words of David, Psalm 46 through 8, to our Lord in his pre-incarnate state. Let's listen to the words again. Let's go to verse 5. Therefore, during the incarnation, Jesus said these words, quoting Psalm 40. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will Oh God, now though these words were spoken by our Lord during his incarnate state, God tells us through the apostle that took place, these words actually predate our Lord. But 
as our Lord's quoting them and as our Lord's apostle is quoting them for us, it seems to indicate there were words spoken by the pre-incarnate son through David, not about David. David's not writing about himself. David's writing about great David's greater son. But notice, uh, notice verse 3. Then I said, this is during the incarnation, also through David before the incarnation, then I said, first person, behold, I have come, first person, in the volume of the book, it is written of me, first person, to do your will, O God. So that's why I said the apostle and our Lord attribute the words of David to our Lord in his pre-incarnate state. First person, I, I, and me. A fourth observation is that this, is this, since Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, predates the incarnation, the words at that point of the psalm, refer us back of the psalm to something previously recorded in God's book. Let's read the words again, especially verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Jesus spoke those during his incarnation. David wrote them prior to the incarnation. So there, these words are indicating that there's something previous to David writing Psalm 40 that we could call a book in which somebody is going to do the will of God. So we have a book that predates the Psalms that tell us somebody's going to do the will of God. And Jesus puts these lips, these words on his lips during the incarnation. And now Paul is telling us that he spoke these words. That the question is, uh, what is this book, the volume of the book? Volume, the head of the book, the beginning of the book. Um, what is that referring to? Now, um, Matthew Poole, he did the 16th century. I'll do the 17th century, guys. Matthew Poole commenting on the words of the King James ver Version. In the volume of the book, it is written of me, uh, Psalm 47. He says this, that it is written of me can't refer to David, because at the time of Psalm 40, there was no other books of Scripture extant but the five books of Moses, unless you will accept the book of Job. And this is meant of the law of Moses. It is written of me, here's what Matthew Poole is saying, in the law of Moses, it is written of me in the law of Moses, which is commonly and emphatically called the book. And so this placed manifestly points to Christ. So it's, it is the mediator according not to his human nature, but according to his divine nature, revealing knowledge about the mediator when he becomes incarnate to David before he became incarnate that has its basis in something before Psalm 40 was written. Did you follow that? You got it, okay. It's really weird. He knows the technical term prosopological something's going on here where this David's writing for another person that's speaking about himself in relation to God that Paul ends up talking about here in this context basically saying Christ is the that to which the sacrificial system pointed to he's the fulfillment of it but he's also saying this 
And he, it was first revealed to man that he would do this way back at the beginning of the book, at the head of the book. Now, of course, our question is, what book? Listen to John Gill going into the 18th century. In the books of the law, in the volume of the book, okay? In the books of the law, the five books of Moses, since these were the only books or volumes that were composed at the writing of this psalm. And it has reference not to Deuteronomy 18, but rather to Genesis... Competition here. Rather to Genesis 3.15... So that, that's, that's what John Gill says. John Gill says, the beginning of the book, the head of the book, the role, the volume of the book, however you translate it, actually refers to not the psalm itself, but something before the psalm was written, so that the mediator is mediating knowledge before his incarnation through David in the psalm that has as its foundation something that's found at the head or the beginning of the writings of Moses, And here we have John Gill and all my heroes from back then all say the same thing. It's all referring back to Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent, the first gospel uh, uh, revelation to us. Now, the only way these words could be those of our Lord prior to the incarnation is if he existed in some sense other than his incarnate state and prior to it. So it's not a pre-incarnate incarnation. The incarnation only happened once in the fullness of time. God sent forth his son. But if this is the son of God, then he must be functioning not according to his human nature, but according to his divine nature, revealing, saving knowledge through the prophet David that finds as its basis the original curse on the serpent as recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3. You know, our confession basically utilizes this view of Genesis 3.15 in several places, but we won't go there. So God the Son, as mediator, acted according to his divine nature prior to the incarnation. He revealed to us Psalm 40, that which was uh, to be done under his incarnate, during his incarnation, though grounded in previous special revelation. So he acts according to his divine nature, revealing to us through Psalm 40, specifically 6 through 8, what he would do during his incarnate state that's ultimately grounded way back there in the curse on the serpent. Um, Focusing on the word... Um, translated beginning or role or volume. Here's what, here's what um, John Owen says. As the book itself was one role, so the head of it, uh, the Pentateuch, you've heard that word, the five-scrolled, one scroll, five-scrolled book of Moses. Now, As the book itself was one roll, so the head of it, the beginning of it, amongst the first things written in it, is this recorded concerning the coming of Christ to do the will of God. This includeth both senses of the word in the head, in the beginning of the roll, namely, of that part of the scripture which was written when David penned this psalm. Now this can be no other but the first promise which is recorded, Genesis 3.15. 
In this promise and the writing of it in the head of the volume lies the verification of the psalmist's assertion in the volume of the book it is written, that book which God has given to the church as the only guide of its faith, the Bible, that book wherein all divine precepts and promises are enrolled or recorded. In this book, in the volume of it, this is the principal subject especially in the head of the roll or the beginning of it, namely in the first promise, it is written of me, end quote. I think he's right. Um, the Bible itself kind of gives us clues elsewhere that I think these older brothers are right. Listen to this, these words, Galatians 3, 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. So here we have a seed promised in the singular, the promise of the seed of the woman way back in Genesis 3.15. It comes through Abraham and it was fulfilled in Christ, though it didn't begin with Abraham. You know, the, the promise of the seed of the woman predates Abraham, right? Comes through Abraham, but it predates Abraham. Abraham believed in a promise of Christ to come that had already been revealed. In Galatians 3.19, we read, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. So here's that Matthew Poole commentary on Genesis 3.15. He says, And her seed, her offspring, first and principally the Lord Christ, who with respect to this text and promise is called by way of eminency the seed. He then refers readers to Galatians 3.16 and Galatians 3.19. Or how about this verse? The Son of God appeared in order that he might destroy the works of the devil. That sounds pretty much like a reverberation, an echo of Genesis 3.15 way over here in the New Testament. It seems to me, and I'm not the only one who believes this, that the New Testament has this at least implied messianic understanding of the skull-crushing seed of the woman promise in Genesis 3.15. I think the Hebrews text is the clincher on that. So let me draw some conclusions. So... What is then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God, mean. It means this, that the words of Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, refer not to David, but to Christ. And though David wrote them, and they're about Christ, David did not first speak them. Apparently, they were spoken to It's the mystery of the mystery of how the word of God comes to the prophets and through the prophets. It's God speaking. It's God saying what they end up writing. But here we have in the words of the psalm, uh, uh, it, could it be one divine person? I, it's almost weird to say this, speaking to another divine person, because that so, sounds so creaturely. But we do have him having a body prepared for him by another and we do have him saying, it's written of me in the volume, in the head of the book. David wrote these words about Christ. David had them revealed to him by Christ. They also mean God had revealed in the book of Moses that the incarnate Son of God would do the will of God once he became incarnate. And 
And if that is the, the way we should look at this Hebrews text here, then we could even say this. Genesis 3.15 um, sets up the entirety of Scripture to have a sacrificial system that can only point forward to an ultimate sacrifice. So the divine remedy for the fall into sin is first revealed to us in the form of a curse upon the serpent, which, by the way, Adam and Eve heard, and there's evidence in the, in the text uh, itself of Genesis 3 and 4 that they assumed it to be some sort of messianic promise. You know the words in Genesis 4.1 where Eve says, Behold, I have, I have gotten pregnant with, with a man, with a man, the Lord, some of the translations. I, I, I now have, I'm pregnant and I have, do I have the Messiah? Do I have the skull crushing seed of the woman in my womb? Especially if you read Reformation and post-Reformation guys, they all took it as Eve thinking she had the Messiah in her belly. I remember reading one of them said, poor woman, she got the doctrine right, but the timing wrong. <laughs> So that's the promise. And then when you read Hebrews 11, you have all those people that by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And the language with reference to especially Noah sounds like justification by faith alone apart from works, all works. But they couldn't read the Bible. You know, the Bible came after Noah. The Bible came after Abraham. But they're in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. They have to have some sort of sub uh, uh, uh revelation from God to believe, and they had to have an object of their faith. What was it? The Christ who was to come. The Christ as promised in the skull-crushing seed of the woman curse motif, which, by the way, curses for some, blessings for other. God saves Israel, drowns a bunch of people, and then saves his people. So the curse upon the serpent can actually be also divine blessing upon uh, others. The, 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 the big example of that is not ancient Israel's exodus out of through the waters of the Red Sea. It is the crucifixion itself where divine curse is coming upon the incarnate Son of God voluntarily and willingly taking, uh, obeying himself unto death and giving himself up. Nobody took his life from him. I'm going to give it up, and I'm going to take it up again. That takes more than just a human nature, right? So you had divine curse coming upon the Son of God, and all the while, the mystery of it is that, yes, he's receiving the curse, and it's going to be a means through which benefits are going to come from him and flow out of him to needy sinners like us. And the supper helps us to remember the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of the Lord he assumed our nature, he assumed our duties, he assumed our liabilities to bring us to God. And we pray that the Lord would bless it for the nourishment of our souls, not just that we would taste a little piece of bread and drink a little cup of wine or something, but that God would come and God would uh, cause this public means of grace to be nutrition uh, for our souls. So, that's our little meditation before the Lord's Supper. I want to pray, and then we'll continue. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you how it's uh, a tapestry of truth. There are connections that we have, none of us have made, that are still there to make. 
Some of us have made more connections than others, but as we do building up uh, one text upon other texts and putting them all in the broadest uh, sense of the context of the entirety of the written word of God, our, our eyes are opened, we see the one purpose and plan of God, the scope of all of Scripture is, that is, the target, the bullseye, the end for which we have Scripture is to give us the knowledge of the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can now partake of this supper together and ask your blessings upon it. In Jesus' name, amen.